Hi, my name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 68, verses 4 through 6. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Exalt the one who rides the clouds. The Lord is his name. Celebrate before him. Father of orphans and defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the lonely in their homes. He sets prisoners free with happiness, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Cor. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19. So then, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. The old things have gone away, and look, new things have arrived. All of these new things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ by not counting people's sins against them. He has trusted us with this message of reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Naomi. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 15, 11 through 13. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his state between them. Soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. There, he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious God, we thank you for who you are. We ask as we listen to your word this morning... Uh, that you would help us to see you, to see you in a fresh and clear way, that you would make our hearts come alive. You would call us to yourself and join us to yourself through the work of your spirit because of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you today on this wonderful June day. Uh, it is Father's Day, and so we are glad for that. It is also, in Christian tradition, Trinity Sunday. And uh, I am going to stay away from sermons on the Trinity in the sense of trying to explain it, because those don't work. Um, but what we are trying to do today is grapple with the question of what is God like, and how does this actually become good news for us? So as I was thinking about this this week, I thought about um, all of the great TV dads uh, that maybe we've had over the years. And maybe going back several decades, uh, some of you, your first kind of TV dad that you bonded with was Pa from Little House in the Prairie. You know, maybe the quintessential sort of mythic American dad can fix anything, build anything, make things grow out of any dirt, uh, but then doesn't speak much. But then when he does say something, it's like, you know, just epic words, right? Uh, others of you just, you know, move kind of the generation uh, forward a little bit or a decade or so forward, uh, I think about Frasier. Anybody? Frasier's on Netflix now, where he's got two boys that are psychiatrists, but actually the real wisdom comes from the dad who's the retired cop, you know? So these two boys can't figure out how to get their own lives to work, but the dad sits in his old recliner and uh, gives out these pearls of, uh, you know, sort of common folk sort of wisdom. 
Uh, or maybe I remember growing up watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I will refrain from doing the rap for you this morning, West Philadelphia, born and raised. Uh, but uh, I introduced my kids to the song the other day because they saw Will Smith in Aladdin. And I was like, guys, before he was the genie, he was the Fresh Prince. Y'all just need to know. And uh, there is that powerful scene in, in, at the end of, uh, near the end of the uh, series where Will Smith's character is in tears saying, why did my dad, why didn't he want me? Uh, how come he didn't want me? And Uncle Phil just hugs him and holds him and he's crying. And so a powerful moment of a father figure to a nephew. Uh, maybe others of you grew up watching Full House. And uh, you just knew Danny Tan or Uncle Danny was going to have a good moment with the kids whenever the little keyboard Yamaha DX7, you know, as soon as the keyboard start playing, you're like, oh, this is going to be good right now. Let's just, just pull up a chair, you know. And listen, uh, you skip forward a few decades and you're hard-pressed to find some good kind of TV dads. You know, you sort of uh, think that maybe the show was, uh, the, the idea was to show dads who are uh, bumbling fools, you know, and they're sort of, you, you know, dads who can't quite get it together. But then, you know, you have a non-traditional, something you wouldn't necessarily think of a family uh, situation, but a very tight-knit group. I'm talking, of course, about Parks and Rec. <laughs> In, in which the father figure is clearly Ron Swanson, uh, who is trying to raise these people who have had their development arrested at some point in their mid-20s and teaches them how to, you know, maybe grow up. But all of this is really a long-winded way of saying, what do we mean when we call God Father? Well, what do we mean by that? Well, what is that about? Uh, we've been singing that this morning. We're making connections with Father's Day and God as Father. And some of you are like, what are we trying to say here? Why say that? Is this a way of saying that God is gendered as a male? Uh, no, that's not what the scriptures mean. When the scriptures have us referring to God as a father, when um, the, Jesus in the Lord's Prayer says, when you pray, say, our father, the idea here is not that the first person of the Trinity is male. The idea here in father is that we're meant to recognize God as the source of all things. And so when you fast forward in Christian confession, uh, the, the Nicene Creed gets written down in the 300s and over 300 Christian church leaders get together to say, let's put down from the phrases in scripture, let's put down what it is Christians confess to be true. What they say about the Father is, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And so referring to God as Father is a way of saying, he's the source. He's the fountainhead. He's the originator. He is the creator of all things. But not just source in a cold way, but also a sustainer and provider. He's the thing that kind of, that holds everything on. So he's not the father that gets it going and then exits, but the father who has a providential care for his creation. And so when you read the Old Testament, you read Israel trying to refer to the, their covenant God, Yahweh, and one of the best, most powerful ways, one of the powerful ways Israel talks about the closeness of their covenant God is they say things like, he is our father. And we are, oh, God says of Israel, Israel is my son, is my firstborn, as a way of helping us make a connection here. But there's another reason. We can talk about the universe in a very cold way. 
And since Malachi already got us on the train of thought of Star Wars, we could talk about things having their existence from something like a force. Why do we have to name God in a relational way? Why not just say, God, the cosmic source, the energy that is the beginner of all things? Well, why not say that? Why use a relational term? Why even do, do Christians speak of God as a trinity, meaning that God within his very being is relational? That there is a being in communion with one another. And that communion is so strong that there's actually a union. And that's about all we can say about the Trinity, right? One God, three persons in one. And why all this relationality? Well, think for a moment about the alternative. If we restrict ourselves to speak strictly in terms of matter, of what we can see and observe and experiment, that we might say something like what the late, great, brilliant scientist Stephen Hawking said about the human race. Hawking said the human race is just a chemical scum on the average-sized planet orbiting around a very average-sized star in the outer suburb of one of a million galaxies. Let's stand and sing. Now, of course, when you look at a quote like that, the idea is not to mock Hawking. Hawking was brilliant. But what he, he was trying to say is, this is all I can know because I'm restricting myself to speak about the world in material terms. And what Christians want to say is, yes, matter matters because there's something that matters more than matter. <laughs> The material world counts for something because there's something more than the material world. That's the confession about a God, that a God is not just a supreme cosmic force that initiates the world into being. That's not the only thing we mean here. And so we use a relational word, Father, as a way of saying God is related to the thing he made. He's not an impersonal force that springs it into being. So the theologian Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams said this. He said, before anything or anyone is in relation with anything or anyone else, it's in relation to God. And he goes on, he says, and said Augustine, who was the church father from North Africa, the great bishop, the father of Christian theology in many ways in the 400s from North Africa. And Augustine said, the deeper I go into the attempt to understand myself, who and what I am, the more I find that I am already grasped, already addressed, already engaged with. I mean, think about that. Before you could even try to figure out myself, there is a God who has grasped you who knows you, knows you in your mother's womb, knew you from before. I can't dig deep enough in myself to find an abstract self that is completely divorced from relationship. This is why it never works to say, I'm going off to the mountain to find myself. It never works because at least a part of how we know who we are is in relationship. If not to the world, then to something else. And Augustine says, yes, but the very first thing you are in relationship to is God. And so Williams goes on. He says, so for Augustine and for the Christian tradition, before anything else happens, I am in relation to a non-worldly, non-historical, everlasting attention and love, which is God. 
And so in Christian tradition, they said, well, what's the best way to convey all of that? And we say, well, let's refer to God as Father. Because Father means source, sustainer, and the one who looks on us with attention and love. That's powerful. Now, as we begin this morning, I want to turn to a story that is maybe the most famous of all the stories Jesus told. We're, we're at the tail end. This is the last week of the series that we've been in uh, on the parables that Jesus told, a series that we've called What the Kingdom is Like. And today we're going to jump out of Matthew's gospel and we're going to go to Luke's gospel to a story that is very commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that this story is not about one son. It's actually about a good father. It's not a story about one extraordinarily lost, wayward child. It's about one extraordinarily good father. And so if you turn with me to the text, we'll begin with verse 11. Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And then the father divided his estate between them. And soon afterward, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. And there he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. The first observation I want to make from this story is that a good father is open-handed. A good father is open-handed. Now, there's many ways of trying to understand the meaning of this request of the younger son demanding or asking for his inheritance. It's very possible that the overtones of that request is the ultimate disrespect to his father. Because inheritances typically are given after the father is no longer alive. And so could it be that there's the sense here that the younger brother is based, the younger son is saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want to have, I want to, I want to receive what it is you were going to give me. And so it could be that this is the ultimate insult that he's saying, Dad, can we just speed along? I don't really care if you're dead or alive. I just want your stuff. But there's something else going on here where a younger son, if any son were going to get the inheritance, it wouldn't be the younger one first. In the ancient Near East, it would have gone first to the older son. And so here's the younger brother not only disregarding his father, but leapfrogging his brother and saying, I, this guy's just in my way. Dad, can you give me what is mine? And yet the father's response is not to rebuke the son, is not to say, how dare you? It's not time. Your brother goes first. His response is to give it to him, to divide the inheritance and give it to him. And so our first insight into the kind of God that God is, is that God is like a father who gives generously. God is like a good father that is open-handed. When you reflect on the human condition and some of the dilemmas in being human, maybe the, the first thing we recognize about the human species is that we are dependent. Some of you have been in rooms where babies have been born and the first thing you recognize is this thing, this boy or girl, this creature, this human being is dependent on someone else for something. And so in many cases it is the parents who then nurture and care for this child and take care of them and, 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 and provide for them. And maybe human beings longer than some other man, mammals keep their young with them for a long, a long period of dependence. Some of you parents with adult kids in the house like, tell me about it. <laughs> like so long. 
But it is a part of the human condition to be dependent on someone external to you. Now stop and think about that for a minute. What does our culture say to us? The height of being a fully flourishing human being is to not need anything from anyone. But that's not actually true. And that true autonomous independence is actually an illusion. That ultimately all of us need someone outside us to give us something we don't have. And in an ultimate sense, we need a God who is outside the world and yet intimately connected to the world to bless us with something that we could never bless ourselves with. We need a God to say, Noah, you are my beloved child. You can't say that to yourself. You can't bless yourself. You can't lay hands on yourself and say, I, this is who I am. That's why we sang this morning, I am who you say I am. I need a God beyond this. Men and women reflect the image of God in overlapping ways, but also in unique and distinct ways. And I can't help but think that we see this played out in different contexts. There's sometimes a particular way that men reflect this aspect of God's nature, the ability to bless and affirm and value. You know where you see it the most is you see it after a big sporting event, a championship. I mean, NBA finals aside, I'm not a big fan of the Raptors, not really happy that they won, but think of some other sporting events. I'm a soccer fan. I was thinking of the UEFA Champions League final when Liverpool won, and I really, and I'm not a fan but, of Liverpool, but, you know, but there was this scene that went viral where a player walked off the field and he's scanning the sidelines and he sees his dad and they just go run to find each other and the father embraces his son and he, they just start weeping. And you see in these moments, I mean, here's an athlete who's a finely trained specimen of his, of his species. <laughs> People who are trained to be mentally tough and focused and extraordinarily diligent and rigorous. And yet, oh, the collapse that happens at the end of winning. And you look for a parent and very often a father and that affirmation comes well done you did it well done and there's something about God a good father who is open-handed that can give us the thing that we long for but could never give ourselves and then as the story goes on it says, when he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need, and so he hired himself out to be one of the citizens of that country, or to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, if you're a Jewish listener listening to this story, who's been taught your whole life that pigs are unclean, you can't even eat pork or bacon or anything like that, to think that you are now, your job is to feed pigs, this would have been a very low point in your life. And so the son says he longs to eat his fill from what the pigs ate. That's how hungry he was. And he gave, and no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, but I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me on as one of your hired hands. He's rehearsing the speech. Rehearsing what he's going to say when he has to come climbing, you know, crawling back to his father. 
And so he got up and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, father doesn't wait. He doesn't say, what do you got? Are you sorry? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. And his father ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Now there's a lot that's going on in this scene. But it may be helpful for us to try to get in the world of the first century here. Because you and I think of a dad running and you're like, okay, it's probably like dad wearing like dad shorts, you know, like cargo shorts with socks and a sandal, sitting on the porch with a cold one, root beer, of course, and, <laughs> and like you see something, you're like, oh man, oh boy, and you start running, and it's just sort of this goofy image. But rewind back and picture a, a father who is a landowner, who has an inheritance that his sons want. Probably a respectable man in the community wearing robes. And the only way for a man wearing robes to run is to pull it up and tuck it in. When you pull it up, you're exposing parts of your legs. And you'll, you'll note that even to this day in certain Eastern cultures, exposing your lower parts of your legs and feet, it's just sort of, it's like, oh, what are you, what are you doing? Like this is kind of, like, it's kind of embarrassing. It's very possible the father here is running because he doesn't care about his own shame. But it's not just that. He's trying to cover and absorb the weight of his son's shame. Deuteronomy says what parents are supposed to do with rebellious children. And again, this might sound foreign to our, eyes, to our ears, but Deuteronomy says, look, when a child has been rebellious, the only thing left to do is to bring them to the city gates and let the elders deal with it. The elders will punish him. Why? Because in the ancient world, they, they thought of sin in a social sense. That sin was not just individual, like what's your bad behavior, what's my bad behavior, and hey, keep your private life to yourself, I'll keep my private, no. They said, no, 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 sin is kind of like a virus. It, it spreads, it, it infects, that, that when you corrupt one piece of the network, it actually introduces a stain on the whole social fabric. Imagine some of you are engineers, you think about the way networks work and nodes and when there's a strained connection between two nodes of the network, it makes the whole network fail. That's how societies thought in the ancient world. Look, a father and his son have a poisonous, damaged relationship. The whole of our society is going to be, the only thing to do is to cast this guy out. Now this may seem like a foreign way of thinking about sin and society and community, but but actually, there are ways that, that we still think of it that way. I was reading a, a short essay that someone had shared this week uh, about a friend saying that they had done the unthinkable with one of their friend's boyfriends and, and just realizing I'm the worst person ever and I'm going to be excluded from this relationship. I've just severed this relationship. And, and, the author of the essay went on to say, you know, from now on, I'm no longer worthy of being part of that friend group. And so now what happens is all of my friends pretend like I don't exist. And she says metaphorically, maybe my death, quote unquote, is the only way to atone for my wrong. Isn't that interesting from a secular perspective? 
that this person knows I have broken a social trust to the point that the only way to cure it is just for them to pretend I no longer exist. We may live in a world that pretends it doesn't believe in sin, but we still know. We may live in a world that pretends that we don't care about guilt. Morality is a social construct. Who cares? You and your fussy religion. But deep in our bones, we know. We know. The secular sociologist Randall Collins talked about the ritual chains that bind human beings. And he says, shame is what happens when one part of that group, there's been a breach in the solidarity. There's been a break in that. Now I know there's an unhealthy kind of shame. There's a shame that can be disproportionate to our actions. I get it. But can I just say that even from a human perspective, suggest to you that there is from a human perspective a healthy function of shame. A shame that serves to say to you, you've wronged someone else. Someone that gave you a sacred trust, you've now wronged them and there's a break here. And Collins says the only way to repair that is to let the offender face the offended and to let them figure out how that the offender can, can experience the weight of his wrong. This is what some people are, are working for when they talk about restorative justice. That the answer, maybe even in our society, humanly speaking, is not just to lock people up who break the trust once, but to find a way to help people be reintegrated into a community. And so this is what Colin says is shame excludes and it breaks, but eventually when you face the wrong, you can be reintegrated. What I think is going on in this story is the father runs because he has compassion on his son, but it's, could it be that the father's running to stop the elders from throwing the stones? To say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You think you're gonna rid our community of this person, but this person is my son. And so if you're going to scorn someone, scorn me. And if you're going to shame someone, shame me. If you're going to put it on anyone, put it on me. And the father steps in between and grabs his son. And so we see here that a good father is not just open-handed, but a good father runs to bear the shame. A good father runs to take the shame on himself. I'll take it on myself. And as the story goes on, the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. I love the father. The father doesn't even address what the son's saying. The guy's like, Dad, I just don't even deserve. I'll be one of your servants. The dad's like, I'm sorry, I can't hear you. My love is drowning out your words. I can't, I can't hear your groveling and my love for you. Come on, grab a robe. Grab a ring. Let's reinstate dignity and authority and identity. Let's reinstate your sonship. And then he says, fetch the fattened calf and slaughter. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine was dead cut off from the circle, but has now come back to life. He was lost and is found, and they all began to celebrate. But the story doesn't end there. And this is why it's not really the parable of the prodigal son. 
Because if it were, Jesus, that would be the moment to do the altar call. Like right there, just stop talking, just end the story. But he doesn't end the story there. Why? Because it's not ultimately about the prodigal. Now his older son was in the field, coming in from the field. He approached the house and heard music and dancing. He called one of his servants and asked what was going on. And the servant replied, your brother has arrived. Your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. And then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter in. But his father came out and begged him. What I want you to see here is that the father leaves the house for both sons. The father leaves the house for both sons. This is not just about one prodigal. This is a story of two ways of being lost. You can be lost in rebellion or you can be lost in religion. You can be lost in obvious sin or you can be lost in the callousness of self-righteousness. But the father goes out of the house for both sons. And he begs him to come in. And he answered his father, look, I've served you all these years. And I've never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I'm taking it here that culturally a young goat is like the the smallest kind of feast. It's like frozen chicken nuggets or something, you know. (laughs) But when this son of yours returned. Now, if you've got a paper Bible, you can underline this phrase. The older brother says, this son of yours. In the Eastern world, in the ancient Near East, in the first century, still in many parts of the world today, how you name someone really matters. And this brother can't name his younger brother as a brother. He says, this son of yours returned after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes. You slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And then his father said, Son, I'll still count you as my son. You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours. The father could have said, because this other son of mine. But see, the father is always triangulating. He's always brokering. He's always mediating. Or to use the biblical word, he's always reconciling. The father says, this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The final thing we observe from this story is that a good father wants everyone to get in on the feast. We could say this another way. We could say the good father wants to form a family at his table. He wants to bring everyone together again. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, Look, in Christ, all things in heaven and on earth are coming back together again. And then Paul spells this out. Chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, look, some of you were dead in your sin. Who does that sound like? The younger son. Others of you were far off. Also younger son. And also older brother by being dead. I mean, there kind of applies. And then he says, but look, God has brought you from afar off, back home. God has made you who were dead alive. God has gathered you together. And then he talks about Jews and Gentiles being united as one. And on and on the letter goes, Paul showing that this is what God does. A father, God is like a father who wants to get his family back together. 
God is like a father who wants everybody to find their place and belong again. That's what God is like. Genesis tells us the story of God the creator making everything and putting it in its place for a purpose. But the story of the fall is not a story of people disobeying God's arbitrary rules. That's not the Genesis story. The story of the fall is about human beings trying to have everything that they need by themselves, in themselves, and as a result, fracturing the world. It's the story of the world coming apart. And so the story of salvation is not God saying, okay, that's fine, get in here, you can still go to heaven when you die. The story of salvation is much better than that. It's the story of God reconciling all things, putting it back together again. Let's heal all that is broken. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. You've already experienced life put back together again inside you. The old things have gone away and look, new things have arrived. And all of these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. You know why that phrase is so important? Sometimes people want you to have the impression that God is like an angry father threatening to destroy the world. And Jesus came in and said, Dad, don't. I'll tell you how, what a horrific distortion that is of the gospel. Paul says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself Look, the Trinity is a complex mystery and we'll never explain it or fully understand it. But we know this, you should never pit the Trinity against each other. You should never split the Father and the Son. The Father was super angry, random rules guy. The Son was super nice, Jesus-y country guy, you know. <laughs> no, Paul says no. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that are involved in creating, sustaining, redeeming, and reconciling all of creation to himself. This is God. This is what God is like. This morning, maybe you find yourself in a place where you need to know this again deep in your bones. Maybe it's, maybe it's something very different. Maybe for some of you that are men in the room, you, you've gotten sort of confusing messages from the world around you. One message says, oh, uh, any kind of maleness is automatically toxic. And then another message says, no, 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 to be masculine is to be macho and all. You know. Listen, whatever we want to say about masculinity, if it doesn't look like an open-handed father who bears the shame and pulls things back together again, that's not a biblical vision. Whatever else we say about this, if it doesn't look like an open-handed, generous, self-sacrificing, reconciling God, then we're off already on the wrong foot. In a world that tries to say, no, 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 it's defined by accumulating and amassing and self-preservation, blaming others, the vision we get of the Father is of a God who bears the weight himself enters into the circle. 
And so maybe you're here this morning and you recognize that you've been trying to live without God as your father. You've been trying to live as a person that can bless yourself, validate yourself, affirm yourself, value yourself. And so you're working like crazy, you're building your platform and you're, you're out there hustling and grinding. But at the end of the day, what you really need is for the maker of all things, the God who called the stars into existence to call your name and say, I bless you. I love you. You're my daughter. You're my son. And maybe others of you, you haven't figured out a way to erase the stain of your own actions from your life. You keep running away. So, well, maybe I'll just go somewhere else. Maybe I'll start with a new circle. Maybe just, you know, haters going to hate. I'm gonna just going to find a new crew that gets me. But really what you need is a father who will bear that shame for you. Who will take it off of you. That's what God is like. And maybe others of you today, you're, you're saying, you know, I just... I just kind of like the Jesus and me thing, but I'm not sure how I fit with others. I'm not sure about belonging. I'm not sure about relationships. I'm not sure about community. The Father wants to put you together in a family. We call God Father not only to indicate our relationship with him, but our relationship with all of his other children. That the other sons and daughters of our Father are our brothers and sisters goes beyond ethnicity and nationality. If we are in Christ, we're brothers and sisters. In what way is God wanting to break down those barriers and walls for you today? Would you bow your heads?